Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Mind to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs, and I'm thrilled to say that we now have people from 32 countries that listen to our show every week, so we appreciate everybody who comes in and listens to this, and this will be the last show for 2020 as uh, we will be off for Christmas and, of course, the following, the last Friday in the month, or the first Friday of the new year is actually January 1st. So I will miss uh, interview, uh, connecting with all of you and uh, having another author here, but we'll be starting again uh, in the second week of January. So uh, today I'd like to welcome Wall Street Journal bestselling author and Salesforce innovation evangelist, Tiffany Bova. Tiffany, welcome. Hi, everybody. Hi, Mark. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. Tiffany, before we talk about your book, uh, let's talk a little bit about your professional background. Can you fill them in a little bit about your professional background? Uh, sure. If you, if I always think, is it really a professional background? But let's let's <laughs> uh, try to sum it up. Um, I was a sales, marketing, and customer service leader in tech for about 15 years. Uh, and then I spent a decade as an analyst and consultant at a firm called Gartner, which is the world's largest uh, tech analyst and consulting firm. And that was really where I sort of learned my chops on, on how to uh, sort of string together lots of data sets and be able to tell a compelling story to get people to think differently about their business. Uh, and now over the last five years, uh, I have been at Salesforce as the uh, global growth and innovation evangelist, which means normally I'm traveling around the world, meeting with customers and speaking at events and, and really trying to stay on the forefront of what's coming uh, next for businesses from a growth sales, marketing and customer service perspective. So I'm a little bit of a practitioner and a little bit of an academic. Uh, and, um, you know, I'm thrilled to be here with you here today. Well, we're thrilled, too. And, and there's a lot of smart people work at Salesforce because now I'm drawing a blank, but we had one of your colleagues um, back in April also talk about his new book as well on marketing. It was about um, marketing to communities. Yeah, Matt Sweezy. Yes, yes, thank you. Yes, thank you. And he was terrific as well. And of course, I saw you actually speak in Philadelphia, and you're a very charismatic uh, speaker. And I really enjoyed the book because you had so many great case studies in there. I thought that uh, was really terrific uh, that you had these case studies. So why did you write this book? Uh, great question. <laughs> it was um, it was one of those things, I don't know how you guys all feel, but sometimes there's points in your life where um, I call them whispers, where you hear little uh, whispers from people in your tight circle or in your network suggesting, you know, maybe you should do something. And one of those for me was people thought I should write a book. Um, I had been speaking and advising for so long that people were saying, hey, why can't you kind of package this up so it's more scalable, right? And let it go global and, and more people can take advantage of, of some of your uh, sort of, you know, insights. 
And it was a very last conversation. I was speaking at an event in Boston and Seth Godin, for those of you who know who Seth Godin is, uh, he's written a lot of really great books uh, over his over his time. Uh, he and I were sitting in the green room behind uh, you know, the events and up speaking was uh, Brene Brown. And after that was Chelsea Clinton. And after that was Malala. And then it was Seth. And then it was me. And I was really the only one who didn't have a book. And so Seth said, you really need to write a book. And so when Seth Godin says you really need to write a book, you sort of take it a little more seriously. And so um, I decided to uh, go through that uh, entire painful endeavor. I'm not sure I would do it again because it was so out of my character. I'm, I'm much better as sort of a speaker and orator communicator than a writer communicator, but I had to find a way to balance the two. Well, people don't realize how much it takes to write a, a book. I've written six of them. There's a lot of discipline in writing a book. So congratulations to you in doing this book. I, I'd like to know, how do you define growth IQ? Yeah, so the name of the book is Growth IQ. Um, it wasn't the first name choice of the book. It was actually a holding name for the book, and then it ended up sticking. Um, but the whole thing for me was that I found that growth is a thinking game. And so IQ tied very nicely to that entire concept. The other thing I realized um, after advising uh, some of the you know largest tech companies in the world, literally, like the largest 50 were clients of mine, and then startups and mid-sized businesses, Pretty much everybody had the same issues. It was just different in the amount of scale and, and money and people that they had and technology that they had to throw at whatever it was they wanted to do. So a small business may have two salespeople, but they're having trouble with leads. A large enterprise might have 2,000 salespeople, and they, they're having trouble with leads. So it's the same thing. It's just a scale problem. Uh, and so I really wanted to frame this up as being, if you can outthink your competition, regardless of how many people, how much revenue, uh, how much uh, cash you have to spend, how many partners you have, whatever it might be, you've got a much better opportunity. So I kind of went into my years of advising and realized that there were sort of 10 growth paths. Now, if you uh, haven't read the book, um, here's what I'd tell you, that those 10 growth paths should not be a surprise to you. It's not like I reinvented any wheel. I most definitely did not. What I did was I went back over the last 50 or 60 years of the top management um, and strategy books on growth, and I tried to modernize those strategies based on what we now have available to us, like social, mobile, cloud, big data, um, smartphones, you know, all the things we have at our disposal, and how would those growth uh, strategies change now, knowing that we have access to all of these things. And so that's why I really leaned into it being a thinking game, because I took 30 company examples and I showed very specific points in time where they made certain decisions um, in uh, when it came to growth in certain uh, order and sequence. And then you could see the performance improvement. And so that was really why I landed on Growth IQ. Um, and, and the good news is people tend to really uh, like the name of the book, which helps because it kind of tells you what it is about. Uh, you know, before uh, before you pick it up. No, and it's an easy name to remember, which is already good marketing in itself. You you mentioned in the book, Ginny Ramadi, am I pronouncing that name correctly? The former CEO of IBM? Ginny uh, Rometty. Yeah. Rometty. Uh, quote, that growth and comfort never coexist. Why is that? Yes. yes. And so um, uh, because I'd been around tech for so long, I kind of wanted to pay a little bit of homage to IBM, especially when it came to sales and growth, because for those of you who have been around technology, if, if any of you have, you know, there was this saying that you'd never get 
fired if you bought IBM, right. sort of in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. They were masterful at launching products, entering new markets, expanding footprints, um, you know, getting million-dollar deals. But more importantly, they were masterful sellers. And that was a really long history of, of why that was. But when Ginny became the CEO um, during that time, and I'm going to get the quarters wrong, but I think it was 20 or 21 consecutive quarters of no growth for the largest tech company in the world. And that quote, growth and comfort don't coexist, was a shorter version of a longer quote. But what she was trying to communicate was they were divesting businesses. They were selling things off to Lenovo. They were selling things off to other manufacturers and tech companies. They were reorganizing. They were doubling down and making M&A in cloud and services businesses. They were really trying to change who they were. But the street was beating them up, right? 20 quarters of no growth is not a great sign. And so, you know, they had one or two, and now they're back into three or four quarters of no growth again. But if you've been paying attention, they actually are breaking up the company um, so that they could focus in on where there is high growth. And so that comfort for leaders, especially during this time, is kind of at a crossroads. You can either go back to the status quo or you can reimagine the future. And I think Ginny was really uh, trying to reimagine where the business was going to be 5, 10, 15 years from now. And making those very hard decisions uh, was not comfortable. So, you know, for leaders that are listening, we have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And when you are seeing quarter after quarter after quarter of no growth, slowing growth or declining growth, um, you have to make really, really hard decisions. So that that was why I started the book off that way, because I think everyone needs to know that they're not alone in feeling like they're not sure what the right answer is, but we gotta, we've got to at least give it a try. So you, you talk about uh, why do companies think one right move will jumpstart or create new sales? Yeah, if I could have a dollar... <laughs> For every executive who I'd go in for a full consulting day, right? Eight hours of my time. And this is what I'd get. So first question, we're facing a growth stall, which is maybe two or three quarters of declining or no growth, call it a growth stall. How do I turn that around? What's the one thing I can do? What can I do in this quarter, in this month, right now to turn around my sales so that I can improve my quarter performance? And they were always looking for the one thing. And so I would sort of describe to them, well, here's what I understand about your business. Here's where I think you need to go. And I'd kind of give them a roadmap of the things that they need to do. And I'd say 85 or 90% of the time, here's what I'd get. Oh, look, that's 18 or 24 months away. I won't have my job if I don't hit my numbers now. Like I need to know what's the one thing I can do right now to turn this around. And there was never one silver bullet. You know, I, people would tend to hire more salespeople, spend more marketing dollars or cut costs. Those were kind of the three ways they would try to fix the dial if for some reason they were facing a growth stall. And you just can't repeat that because if you cut costs too much, uh, you don't have the ability to recover. Hiring salespeople doesn't fix the systemic issues you might have internally. And spending more marketing dollars doesn't mean you're spending them correctly. So you know it, it really was about this combination of multiple activities create this flywheel of, of, mo of uh, momentum in the business and give you this kind of ripple effect of, of positive results. Once I started to explain the fact that it was a combination of things, I could see the light bulbs go off. And I knew that that's where I had to take the book because people were looking for one thing and those 10 growth paths, I never say there's one you have to do. 
I say there are a couple you have to do in combination with any other one you pick. Like you have to be good to your customers. You have to be effective in selling. You know, those two uh, should happen regardless. And so it was really about a combination play. And that was began to be the foundation of what was different about Growth IQ than other books that I had read. And I had read 70 of the best business books ever written before I wrote my book. Um, and so I really tried to fill in those gaps of what of what was missing. And so that combination was one of the big nuggets that came out of it. Did, did you find when you talk to companies, if the company's run by a finance person outside of the financial services industry, they tend to always look on cutting everything as opposed to maybe investing in innovation. And the salespeople tend to think it's just the sales problem. If we push, we push, we're going to get more sales. Do you find that the companies that have the best chance of success are, are run by people who have an innovative mind and, uh, and can take a long-term view? I think the most successful leaders are those that are in most in tune with their employees and their customers. I mean, full stop. I don't care if you're a finance guy and or legal or head of sales and marketing and you've worked your way up to the C-suite. Um, you know, I use Undercover Boss. If I could see all of you, right? How many of you have seen Undercover Boss? You'd raise your hands. Um, and if you've watched the show, in the first five minutes, they spend really expensive TV time putting makeup on executives to disguise them so that they can go and, you know, walk amongst the people and not be recognized. I don't know about you, but many of those CEOs could have walked in with no makeup and no one would have recognized them because they never leave their office. So I feel like what a waste of five minutes of very expensive TV time. And so that to me is much more of a signal, right? That you wouldn't cut costs if you knew it would have impact to your employees, their happiness and their performance, or if you cut costs and it would impact the experience a customer has with your company. If you do, if you cut too thin, those two things go awry, you've got no ability to grow. So, you know, the fastest way for me to know what kind of leader I'm dealing with is I ask this one question. Do you look at customer service as a cost center or do you look at customer service as a revenue generating engine? And if they answer that it's a cost center, meaning how many heads do we have? How many phone calls do we get in? You know, what time of day do we need it? Are we outsourcing after hours? Are we open 24-7? Like, if it's totally a CFO exercise of, you know, sharpening the pencil and it the, the call center is totally based on how many calls you have coming in, and then you put limits on how much time that they can spend on the call with a customer, I know they are not customer or employee centric. And so it doesn't matter if they're a CFO or whatever their title would be, that they don't have a culture that is customer focused and, and uh, customer centric and employee first. And I can tell right away with that one simple question. What's scary when I ask that is sometimes they'll say, unless it's the CFO, obviously, or the head of service, they'll say they don't know. And so they don't even have an understanding of, you know, where is the bets being placed from a financial standpoint when it comes to business. And, um, you know, that, that goes back to that undercover boss where uh, leaders have got to get out of their four walls and right now kind of expanding those four walls in communicating more effectively with employees and customers. And I've got a great story um, to share if you want me to, to dig yeah, further into what that, what that means. Yeah. So, so, you know, as mentioned, Mark uh, mentioned, I work at Salesforce um, and uh, Mark Benioff, who's our CEO, it was probably the end of April, beginning of May timeframe. Um, I had flown back from Sydney, March 10th, got right back into the U S before it locked down 
Um, and we all of a sudden went into a hard lockdown and we still are uh, at this point, 55,000 employees. And so Mark, re, you know, on an all hands call that we have every week, actually with our entire leadership team and our entire board of directors, every single week internally, we have an executive leadership call that they can share with us what's going on, going back to being accessible, listening to employees, et cetera. But what Mark did was he challenged the company to have 1 million conversations with customers, 1 million. Now, if you have 10 employees, make it a thousand conversations or a hundred conversations. We could have a million um, and we actually ended up having 1.5 million. But what happened out of that was it was all captured and it completely reshaped our product portfolio and our roadmap. We reorganized to sort of respond to what customers need from us today. There was a, a thousand people, unfortunately, that were let go. 4,000 new job openings happened. So those thousand could apply. And we launched five new products during a pandemic. So 55,000 employees acted like a startup. And how did we do that? One million conversations. And it ended up being 1.5, right? So then Mark said in classic uh, Salesforce uh, sort of form, make it 5 million conversations so that we keep having these dialogues. And those dialogues and those conversations, you're looking for signals because at the end of the day, if you ask your customers what they want from you, we all know the adage. They're going to say they want faster horses, not a car, you know, sort of Henry Ford. And customers would probably never have said they wanted this first generation iPod, which I still use, which I love. Um, they would have said, I don't want to go for a run or a walk, you know, and I have to listen to the same CD over and over. Or by the time I get two miles away from my house, I don't have radio, you know, on my Walkman. What they were saying, what they were trying, this was the solution, the job to be done, but they weren't asking for an iPod. They were trying to solve a business problem. And those conversations help you uncover what your customers will want next from you or your employees. And so that is, you know, one thing I would give you is that maybe you come up with what is your 1 million conversations and you challenge your own organization to reach out. I'm sure you've been talking to customers over the last eight or nine months, no question. But have you been really having these kinds of jobs to be done conversations where you're looking for what is the iPod for you? What is the uh, thing that is really going to be what your customers want in the future and not just today? And so that's a, a great example of the kind of leader that you need to be is not sort of, you know, trying to cut costs and find a way through this with the old mentality or the old mindset. It's really thinking with what we call a beginner's mind and looking for those opportunities. How quickly do you guys at Salesforce, you, you said there were four new product ideas that you came up with. How quickly does a product get developed and launched in Salesforce? So we we launch, um, we have product uh, updates three times a year. That's it. We are on a three-year, three-time-a-year schedule. Um, and so the new products that there was five of them, one of them was work.com as an example, where early on we heard from customers that they they wanted to get their employees back to the office and back to work. They needed to do so in a safe manner. Well, we had in Service Cloud scheduling. We had in Sales Cloud the ability to communicate and Marketing Cloud. And so if we pulled those things together, could we schedule people to come in the office so that you know you only had five people coming in? We, we then said we need contact tracing. We then said we you know, need a deal with someone like CVS, which we did so they could test and we could contact trace so that we could make sure that employees were safe if they were going to visit customers or going back to the office. 
And so that as an example was very, very quick, but it was a sort of combination of pieces and parts we had around the company that we could pull together and repackage. That's very different than saying from the ground up, we're going to launch something new. Um, some of it was video now being such the main right uh, medium for communication and not field visits from a sales perspective or a service perspective. So how do you embed video into the CRM system? So that gets captured and it can be connected with that account. Things like that, that needed to happen very rapidly because now everyone's working from everywhere, selling from everywhere, servicing from everywhere and anywhere, you know, how could we do it? So, you know, I'd say that, you know, while we launched five new products, it's not that they're all stood up and live and we have all our customers on it, right? It's, it's in beta. Some of it is sure. out now. Some of it will be out in Q1 of next year, halfway next the, of next year. Do you know what I'm saying? So, but the point is, is that we, we very rapidly reimagined what those products would need to deliver if now customer service call centers are kitchens and living rooms and they're not call centers anymore, right? So what, what would that look like? So, you know, I challenge you to say, what is the product of the future that you need? And it may not be what you have today, but it may be a variation of what you have today. You don't need to completely reinvent, but could you adjust and, and slightly pivot um, what you're doing to, for future success? Tiffany, did you find when you've worked with other companies that if you worked with people who founded the company, like Mark did, he's the entrepreneur, that they were much more attuned to listening to what you had to say and, and acted on it quicker than folks who may have been brought in their so, so-called professional managers? You mean for us internally, how we were able to do no, that? No, I mean, for you and the consulting work you do. Yeah, you know, so I learned very early on um, my last, uh, I guess, leadership role where I had staff and I had P&L responsibility and I had a revenue number um, was sort of 2004 to 2006. And I ran a division of Gateway Computers, if any of you remember the yeah. Holstein cow boxes. So yes. I ran a division of, of Gateway and they hired me to stand up the indirect channel program. So selling through and with partners or resellers. At the time, Gateway had Gateway stores. And if you remember the Gateway stores, they were all within two miles of a CompUSA. That was the strategy. And they were standalone buildings. And they had things that were genius bars back then. It was called something different. But the audience and the customer back then was very technical, very male, not family. People didn't have you know, computers in their home, et cetera. When they closed the stores and pushed everything to into CompUSA and Staples and Best Buy, et cetera, they said they wanted to work through resellers. So they hired me to do it. And uh, I had been doing it for a decade. And what was interesting about that was they hired me for my expertise. I built a whole plan and they said, we need to go to an outside consultant to validate your plan. So they brought in a company called Gartner. And, uh, you know, they paid them a lot of money. And I said, okay, all they did was validate what sort of I created. Now, it was probably 70% of what I created. And the 30% they added was a great lesson for me. But what I was going to say is they didn't listen to me internally. They listened to the third-party voice. When I left Gateway and I went to Gartner, now all of a sudden I saw the power of it. So I'm having a meeting and Mark, you know, you've been telling your boss for six months that the sky is blue. They're like, no way, the sky is not blue. I walk in as a consultant and I say, oh, the sky is blue. And the leader goes, oh my God, we didn't know the sky was blue. <laughs> yeah. And you say, I've been telling you this for six months. That happens to everybody, right? It's sort of from the outside in. 
if there's an ability for you to create a culture where ideas can come from the bottom up, not just the top down, and you have a way to capture those um, you know, ideas and then vet them, you would be surprised, once again, what your customers and employees kind of help you co-develop the future strategy for your, for your company. You know, it, it, going back to what I just said about us launching five products, you know, that came from all those conversations. Is it that we never thought of it? I have no idea. Was the timing better now? Maybe so. But the point is you have to be willing to ask and listen and then action it. And it isn't always the right answer and people don't always have the right idea. But if you at least show them that you listened, you considered it, even if you didn't do it, it goes a long way to help you be uh, uh, more of an empathetic um, and approachable leader. Well, the average age of the people who listen to my show is 51 years old. And uh, the reason I bring this up is uh, I'm curious about what's the biggest reason once successful companies slide into oblivion like Sears, who you write about, and I'd like to hear more about the, this particular case study, Wine Labs, Bethlehem Steel, Commodore Computer. What's your take on this? And you have good stats about this in the book. So I don't know about you guys, but I'm, I'm in the same age range. I'm 54. Like I've no, I don't care. I'm 54. Like, uh -huh. You know, when my mom sent me my AARP card, I knew that was it. Life was over. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, I remember uh, I'm from Hawaii, born and raised. And Sears was the only department store we had when I was a kid. And the Sears catalog was my Christmas shopping list. I would like dog ears all the catalog and we would go show up to Alamoana Center. And there was the whole fulfillment downstairs and I could order what I wanted out of the catalog. It was a big thing. Listen, Sears was in everybody's home and they had everybody's address and they were within two miles of everybody's house. They were selling appliances and owned those brands. For me, the fact that Sears did not own the smart home market was a complete miss for them, that they had access to all of it. And so a lot of that has to do with not hanging on to the past and reimagining what the future could look like. You know, the Blockbuster story in Netflix, Blockbuster was doing streaming years before Netflix. But what was different there is we didn't all have high speed in our homes. So some of it is the timing um, and sequence of what you do. So, you know, whenever I see big brands crash like that, it's when they don't and are not willing to make the adjustments that they need to make. And, you know, unfortunately during this pandemic, it has cracked open the lack of investments many companies have made in technology just think about your local restaurant that didn't have their menu online or didn't have a deal with Uber Eats. Now, all of a sudden, they need everything has to be ordered online and everything has to be delivered versus a, a restaurant who already has the established uh, relationship with, with delivery. They already have their customer's contact information. They already have the ability to order online. They were in a very different position than someone who wasn't. And you could say that about all the retail storefronts, all the small businesses that are struggling that they don't even know who their customers are and they had no ability to scale quickly and get people working from home if possible. So, you know, that kind of investment is critical. Um, and I think Sears just missed it. Um, but there's other examples in the book too. You know, I'll tell you when I went on my book show, a uh, book road show now, it was about two years ago. The number one story everyone wanted, everybody wanted to talk to me about was Kylie Jenner. Um, because, Whatever you may think of the Kardashian-Jenner family uh, is really irrelevant to me, but I will tell you that she built a five or $600 million company 
with 12 employees. No warehouses, no R&D lab. And then you could say, you know, how long did it take, you know, L'Oreal to do that, to reach a billion dollars was 25, 30 years. What sped her up? What can you learn from that? It was the power of the network. It was the power of the social media platform. And while you may not have 100 million followers, the point is, how could you use technology and, and social to grow like that? How could you use partnerships to not do things inside and save money in that way? How do you create a network of knowing exactly who your customer is? I am not her target market. This audience is probably not her target market. And that's okay. She knows exactly who they are and they've grown up with her to bring her to a billion dollar brand. So, you know, there's lots of things to be said about what Kylie did versus what Sears did and, and why those two things um, are, are completely at odds with each other. Yeah, it's amazing how Sears has basically disappeared and as JC Penney's is disappearing and, and so many of these companies. And so, you know, and, the, and back then those guys were also hiring supposedly the smartest minds from all the best schools in the world. And they still um, are going to, within a short period of time, not but, exist. But, but that goes back to uh, growth and comfort don't coexist, right? right? Like the CEOs of those big brands that are gone were either unwilling to um, make the hard decisions, divesting in something that they sort of you know grew up with, or you know, buying something that is kind of out of their wheelhouse to help them, um, you know, further to talk more to customers to find out what they need next. All Sears did was within its four walls try to optimize that experience instead of saying, "Well, wait a minute, what about online? What about pop-up stores in here? What about you know owning the smart home or forget home, own the smart kitchen?" I mean, they had every appliance. They had washers, dryers, stoves, refrigerators, microwaves. They had all of that. Why not own it? Think about Nest. Think about all the smart appliances. They Remember the Sears repairman would show up. Remember those commercials? Yeah. It's like, which is basically Geek Squad, which is basically, you know, you could rattle off what who Sears could have been. Should they have purchased Nest? Should they have purchased, you know, some of this tech? Like, they let go of those brands that was the entry point to the home. And, you know, you know, I have done no work with Sears. So this is only from an outside eye looking in that I think that that was just a complete miss. Um, how often do partnerships work and how do you enhance your chances of success in a partnership? Because I've seen and, and we have many entrepreneurs on here and uh, I run the Angel Venture Fair and we always hear entrepreneurs saying, oh, I have a partnership with this company. And I'll, I'll say to them, but the salespeople, how are they incented? If, they, if your product is not among the two or three that they get measured by, what does the partnership even mean? And we often hear people uh, announcing these great partnerships that they have. So how do you go and make those things work? Yeah, so I grew up, partnerships is kind of where I cut my teeth, meaning when I became a, a sales leader, it was in the indirect or selling with or through partners in just, you know, sort of motion of go to market. I was very much an indirect leader. I had to learn how to be direct and then I had to learn how to be hybrid of, of being responsible for both business sold with and through. So what I mean by that is Heinz ketchup, you can't go to Heinz.com and buy ketchup. You have to go to your grocery store and then the grocery store sells to you. I managed that transaction of how do I get the product to the end user if it was going to go through 
Best Buy, CompUSA, CDW, whoever the technology uh, resellers were going to be. And now you're seeing how partnerships are really one plus one equals three. So small businesses not having the capability to invest in certain things, partnering with someone else who does it, and maybe even I call it coopetition, which is another growth path in the book, that you're working with someone you may view as a slight competitor of yours. But really, truly, it's rare that someone's going to be right on top of you from a competition standpoint. So, you know, one of you made a comment, I think, David, about Amazon is hurting everyone, starting with a small business now in the larger business. Look at how many brands now sell on Amazon. Nike swore they'd never do it. They'd never have a Nike store on Amazon. Sure enough, they do. And they closed down some of their stores. And that's where they went because it was about where are the customers. But Amazon also has a huge third-party uh, resale group where they're selling for small businesses and giving them access to customers they otherwise would not have. Now, do I think it's all rosy? Of course not. Do I think that they have really hurt you know, some businesses because of that lack of digital transformation? Of course. But if you look at the power of the partnership, um, there is value there. So you know, I, I think that it's a matter of what would a partnership benefit you? Think about the Kylie example. She hired a call center. She hired a distribution facility. She hired manufacturing and printing. She hired, you know, uh, the the lab technicians. She worked with partners, and then her core employee base was, you know, twelve or fifteen people. It doesn't mean they were doing all the work. It meant that they were managing these partnerships. And from a cost model, she maybe gave up ten or fifteen points, but it gave her huge scale. Once again, getting to a billion in five years versus getting to a billion in fifteen or twenty. So, you know, partnerships are super powerful if used correctly, but don't think if you're a small business that the partnership is your answer to having a sales uh, stall or a growth stall, that it's not if you build it, they will come. You can't just refocus all your energy and people towards a partnership that may take 18 or 24 months to show any real big results. You have to do it um, in parallel with your direct selling efforts. What's the best advice a local small business can learn from a successful big business? Something uh, that can be applied with little cost. I think that there is a lot to be said for, once again, this is not lost on me that I work at Salesforce. So put that aside for just a second. But if I were still an analyst and a consultant, I would say the exact same thing. I would say as a small business today, do not be afraid of technology. Do not be afraid that it's going to replace people. This is an and play. This is human and technology. How can you give time back to your people to do what you hired them to do? So for example, 60 plus percent of a sales rep's time is spent on non-selling activities. I mean, what'd you hire them to do? You hired them to sell. But a lot of it is looking things up, going to multiple systems, having to chase you know, a, an approval on a price reduction, um, you know, following up on where something is to be shipped all these things that are not sort of net new selling activities. And so, you know, we grew up in small business. That's where we've sort of, you know, grew our first, you know, really big set of customers. And a big portion of our business is still small and mid and, and uh, you know, kind of under a hundred seats. So we launched a new product called Essentials that hits at that less than 15 employees, but gives them all the power that the larger businesses um, would actually want. And so a lot of really fast growing um, uh, companies today are using technology. Once again, it doesn't have to be Salesforce. I hope it is, but it has to be something. 
You have to be looking for technology to give you those insights of predictability into your business, forecasting, pipeline, service, marketing, sales, everything that you may change management, risk management, um, hiring, onboarding, training, everything now has a digital component, especially because we're working from anywhere. So that's really an area that you just cannot, um, you just cannot cut corners on. Um, it gives you the opportunity to play and compete against the bigger companies if you use technology uh, in a right way. So there was there was a there's a comment about Kylie Jenner not no longer a billionaire. I don't care if she's a billionaire or half a billionaire. She got a lot more money than <laughs> I got. Yeah. So whether it's a hundred million dollar business, the, the once again, what regardless, three, four, five hundred million selling 51% of her business for 600 million. Like you can't argue. I don't care if she's a billionaire or a half a billionaire. The point is how she built that business and what decisions she made is what the key to that is. You know, it wasn't a, a Ponzi scheme. It wasn't, you know, illegal. It wasn't all of those things. So get to a hundred million dollars as a 20 year old in a year. I'll, I'd take it. So, you know, I'd take it at 54. So we just got to figure out what are the lessons in that versus getting caught up on is she a billionaire or not? Oh yeah, yeah. No, you know, clearly she's smart. She could be writing the book for sure. Uh, that one of the uh, listeners would love to hear what you think about the purchase of Slack. No comment. <laughs> okay. All right. So, yeah, that's a that's a hands off. Yeah, there's nothing I can say there. Yeah. Understood. Uh, why should you write in the book? Why should you start with context and circumstances when making decisions? Yeah. So what I tried to do was create a framework in Growth IQ, and so let me just step you through it really quickly. The first thing I said was, and this was a lesson I learned. Look, as a consultant, someone would ask me a question, and I, you know, my first three years of doing it, I would just answer the question. About year four, I realized what a disservice I was doing to my for my customers that I needed to understand the context of their business before I ever answered the question. So instead of saying, what's the best way for me to grow? I'd be like, oh, I think you should do partnerships. I think you should, I think you should, I think you should. Instead of understanding what the context was. And so the context is things like a black swan event we're dealing with. A context may be you own the majority share of a, of a particular market. You own a patent. You have a really strong culture. Um, your customers are highly loyal. Your average sales cycle is, you know, certain uh, certain time frame. Um, you're a great place to work. You're one of the most innovative companies. Whatever the context is for you, culture, products, business, organization, you are the only one that has that context. So when you try to copy competitors, I always caution people because they have a different context. So context is where you're starting from. Then I say, what growth paths are you already on? Should you stay on them? Should you get off of it? Should you start investing in something else? What combination is right for you? But the linchpin, the Achilles heel of Growth IQ is what I called sequence. The order in which you do things has meaningful and measurable impact to your success. For example, climbing Mount Everest. You can't go from the bottom to the top. You have to go from base camp to the first camp, back down to the second camp, back down to the third camp, back down. The order in which you do that is the only way you live and survive to get to the top. If you're going to bake a cake, the order in which you mix things and cook things and what temperature and how long 
I could have the same ingredients as Martha Stewart and Snoop Dogg, yeah. right? And it doesn't mean it's going to be as good as theirs because they know uh, in what order to actually bake and cook things, even though I'm reading the same instructions. So sequence is the absolute Achilles heel for your business. When you do it, in what order? So for example, Netflix. If Netflix had started with streaming, would they have been as successful? So the reason the answer is no is because we all had DVD and VHS players in our house. We did not have DSL, dial-up. We definitely didn't have high speed. So they had to start with mail order because the job that was trying to be done was eliminate the friction and going to Blockbuster, late fees. So we'll just send to you. As soon as people started getting Wi-Fi and I mean, uh, high speed in the house, what they do, they went to streaming. You might be surprised to know that there are still, you know, a couple hundred million people who still use the mail order. It's their most profitable piece of the business and it funds and finances all their original content. So, you know, the order is really meaningful. So you can think about that with everything, you know, in your business, it might've been the right decision in the wrong timing. Think about pets.com. 2001, 2002, 2003, it failed. Chewy, unicorn. What's different? There's, it was ordering pet stuff online. What's different? We now all have smartphones. We have now, now all pivoted towards that. So timing and sequence in every decision you make, it might be the right decision, but step back for a second and make sure you're doing it in the right order. Um, that, if anything, those three things, your context, which growth, pa growth paths, and which decisions you make in which order, um, if you take those th three things away from the book, um, it's been a success. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, a listener asks, should customer success teams that work with customers to optimize their use of your product be incentivized the same way as traditional sales? So <clears throat> for those of you who don't know, <clears throat> customer service went, has gone, is going through a little bit of a renaissance, if you will, to rename themselves customer success. And that goes back to the comment I made a few minutes back where I said, if you view customer service as a cost center or a revenue generation center, a revenue generation center tends to be called customer success. So it's about how do we make sure and ensure our customers are successful using whatever product or service we've sold to them. Okay. So. The question is, how much of customer success slash customer service feels like a sales job versus, you know, a traditional sales job? I use American football as my example. Uh, American football will have a field goal kicker and a running back. If you know anything about American football, you would know that a running back and a field goal kicker look nothing alike. They don't have the same height body, weight, strength, skill, et cetera. But what do they do? They both score points. A field goal kicker can win a game from the 50 yard line and score a field goal. They score the last point on a touchdown, right? And games have been won by one point. A running back might uh, score six points or two if you're doing uh, uh, an extra point. So at the end of the day, I think of customer success as the field goal kicker. I think of the running back as sales. Both score points, both sell. Very different skill sets, both important. So having customer success 
have some enablement, the same way you enable your sellers, you have to enable customer service and customer success to be able to serve the customers um, and potentially upsell, cross-sell, and reduce churn. You don't want to lose them. So those kinds of call centers that view it as customer success, do not view it as a cost center, look at it as an opportunity to solve the problem of your customer and potentially upsell. Now, when I was at Gartner, we made a prediction that 25% or so of quotes coming out of a CRM system or a cost to, a quote to cash system would come out of customer service, which leads you to believe that that is where we really have the ability um, to add additional selling. So that's a great question because I think people view selling as the only place where revenue will get generated. But if you think about field service, uncovering opportunities, customer service, uncovering opportunities and customer success, really being focused on making sure that customers are able to use and leverage what you're selling. Um, huge competitive differentiator if you get it right. How has COVID changed the business world now? And where do you think the changes will happen in the future? What have, what have we learned from COVID and how, how are things changed and will be changing? Well, there's a few things. One, I'd say that it's been inspiring to see how quickly people have made investments in digital transformation. We've seen more digital transformation in the last eight months than I've probably seen in the last decade, where people were stalling and not making investments and now have been forced to. So that is all uh, goodness uh, for both employees and customers. Um, the second is that I don't think it's going to go back to the way that it was, and I hope that it didn't. We had a lot of, lot of inequality uh, around access to technology. So imagine that, you know, there's 60 or 80 million people in the U.S. who don't have access to high-speed internet, yet we've just told everybody to work from home, educate from home, do healthcare from home, you know, stay socially connected from home, all of that, yet they don't have high-speed internet. And so when the pandemic first hit, the Starbucks around the corner from my house, the parking lot was packed every day. Why was that? Because people were there getting free Wi-Fi from Starbucks. So they could educate their kids and do Zoom calls and work. That, that I hope we find a way to make sure that we're giving access to everybody, that this doesn't become a bigger gap. The other that I'd say is that we've kind of reimagined uh, what we can, what's possible and what we can do. So if we can learn from where we are now and, and fix some of the things that we're coming from from the past, and we can land somewhere where we're better off, I, I think there's a tremendous amount of opportunity. But you know, the 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 blurring of the lines between the consumer buyer and the business buyer, I don't know if that's ever going to come back, you know, to having it very different personas. I think that we all now have our consumer hats on all the time and those expectations are going to follow us back to work. Um, so, you know, thinking about how can you be more digitally connected for your employees and your customers, uh, I think that this is only going to accelerate. And things like education and healthcare and work will be reimagined, um, and some for the good and some not for the good. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but last year I flew 375,000 miles. I gave 100 keynotes on six continents. Being grounded is nerve-wracking for me. Um, but thankfully, I get this opportunity to some, in some way sort of spend time with people. But I also don't like the term social distancing. I like physical distancing because I feel <laughs> like we're being social. Um, and so, you know, those are the things sort of how do we become better humans to the, our communities and our broader shareholders during this time for all the things we've learned, you know, we throwing away 4 million pounds of potatoes because the supply chain is broken and we have 
you know, uh, an another 8 million people have hit the poverty level in the last uh, 30 days is unacceptable. So how do we find ways to really solve those big problems? And I feel like we're now having these kinds of conversations beyond just business, kind of business being the greatest platform for change. So that's been really inspiring. You know, one of the things that is interesting is my sister's uh, uh, HR for a global company, and she said they just did a survey, and the vast majority of their employees under 35 would prefer to stay working from home even when this ends. And I thought for sure that most people would want to go back because they missed the social interaction. But you said the people under 35 are perfectly comfortable just working from home or going to a Starbucks, not coming into an office. Yeah, and so we did a survey as well um, uh, via Tableau, which was another uh, acquisition of ours. And it, it's really just looking at kind of the future of work. And it was saying, what's your number one most uh, uh, you know, uh, challenge right now for business owners? And it's employee safety, health and safety. It's sort of number one. How do we get people back to work in a safe way and serving customers? And depending on where you're dialing in from, you know, I'm in Southern California at the moment and we're back sort of on a you know, stay at home order. And so going in and out of that is, you know, really, really challenging. And so mental health and well-being is sort of number one and, and you know, that safety. But I will tell you that what employees are asking for right now is they want to be reskilled and retrained because they know now that their job that they might have done previously, it may not be the same going forward. So really thinking about ways to reskill and retrain your people or offering up ways that they could do that so that the jobs of the future um, that that may be at your company or even potentially somewhere else, you know, that they have the ability to do those things. Um, so, you know, those, the, the, but I would tell you in the small and medium business survey we did, we did a March and August. They were very, people were still optimistic in March and they are small mid business SMBs are still very optimistic now. It only declined four or five points. And so, you know, SMBs are the lifeblood of communities. So you are the heartbeat of what, what goes on. And so, you know, having optimism in the small business market is just critical to future success. How would you engage customers uh, for future innovation and who's been good at it? What was the last part? And who's been good at it? So how would you engage customers uh, for future innovation, you know, to create new products and services for your company and who's been good at it? So you're studying yeah, yeah, I just did two research, um, two research studies, uh, one with Forbes Insight, where we found that companies that have very strong employee experience leads to very strong customer experience, leads to a 1.8x growth rate than those that do not have strong EX and CX. Now that seems very obvious, but the fastest way to get your customers to love your brand is to get your employees to love their job. And so that body of research actually shows about 40 companies that are very strong in EX and CX that you can take a peek at. So you can search Tiffany Bova, Forbes. It's called the employee, uh, the, um, employee equation. And so that's one piece of research that will show you people who have done it really well in EX, CX. I also participated in another one, another one called the Bloomberg uh, uh, Customer Centricity Index. And that was companies that were very, very focused from a customer centricity standpoint. Who are they and why is that the case? 
And so we have, we have brands, even someone like Lamborghini, which, you know, is a very high end brand makes a handful of cars a year. And you'd think because of this high end, they must have an incredible experience for their customers. Lo and behold, they did not. It was disconnected. Someone who went to the website, came into the showroom, bought and got service, felt like they were dealing with four very different companies. And so even very established high dollar ticket, you know, brands have got to find ways to get better because these expectations are better. So my challenge for you would be write down on a list, what was your last best customer experience? I don't care what industry, who was it? Why was it? What was your last worst experience? Who was it? Why was it? Now I want to ask you if people, if you asked your customers, who was their last best experience? Would they say your company? If they said, who was your last worst experience? Would they say your company? And then you need to understand why did you think it was so good? You know, one of you asked about Amazon having terrible customer service and still booming, right? I don't know, you know, I've not had a bad experience with, with Amazon's customer service, you know, the returns, Shipping, super easy. If something, you know, if I had a problem with a, a product, they'd step me through it. You know, so, you know, it doesn't mean it's always bad. It doesn't mean it's always good. What matters is, you know, what do your customers feel when they engage with your brand? So understanding what your benchmark is, once again, going back to what will not change through COVID, is in, customers' expectations now are so high. And we are bringing our last best experience to our next experience, regardless of industry. Wow, I had a really great experience at Starbucks. I went to my doctor. It was terrible. Right? I had a really good experience ordering online at Nordstrom. And then I had a really terrible experience when I bought from you know, XYZ company on retail. Why don't they do what Nordstrom does? It's like, well, Nordstrom has all this money. I'm a little small retailer. But remember, that little small retailer isn't investing in technology or partnerships. You can do it. It's hard. It's uncomfortable, but you can deliver equally compelling experiences that the big guys do if you're if you're focused on it. What suggestion would you have as the best way to break into an industry that is so slow accepting technology? Oh, if I had that answer. So, you know, I can tell you that it was I when I was advising companies. And I would say the sky is blue. Trust me when I tell you the sky is blue. And they wouldn't, they wouldn't buy it. Nope. Not going to happen for 18 or 24 months. When I was working at Gartner, the thing that became, and I learned was my superpower was there were a thousand analysts who were much smarter than me. I went to a state school. I don't have my MBA. I'm a practitioner. I had to learn how to be an academic. Okay. So you got a thousand analysts that are very smart. I consumed all that research and I said, okay, what does that say to a sales, marketing, customer service leader or an entrepreneur or a small business or a startup, someone responsible for strategy? I had to pull all that together and then say what it was. So I had all this research behind me and I'd be like, the sky is blue. Nope. Sky is not blue. Even something like cloud. Trust me when I tell you big software company unnamed Cloud is going to disrupt your business and you have to figure it out. Nope, people are going to always buy our on-premise stuff. Like, sure enough, that's not the case. Or a very large PC company um, uh, that only sold direct. And then one day realized customers wanted to buy through partners. 
So, you know, I'd, I'd say that, you know, the sky is blue when it's those kinds of things, you are going to have to figure out a way to actually work your way through it. Um, and so, uh, but I'm not telling you that just because I say it's blue, that that's right. That's where all those conversations amongst your employees and your customers and your network and your broader shareholders, partners, event sessions like this is fantastic. So, you know, hearing different points of view, if you get one little nugget and it makes you pivot ever so slightly, it, that that's what you have to focus on. Um, but I'd say to you that the answer to whatever question you have right now about growth, about your business, about the future is absolutely within your employee and customer base. You have to find a way to capture it, ask the right questions, become a master asker, which is a term from Mark Victor Hansen, who wrote Chicken Soup for the Soul. Um, anyway, uh, he was on my podcast and he and his wife just wrote a new book called Ask. Becoming a master asker is Tom Peters, who wrote In Search of Excellence, said management by wandering around. So you have to wander around, a la Tom Peters. You have to become a master asker and then you have to listen and then you have to action. And so asking the questions, so, you know, I wish I could get to all the ones that you have, but, you know, ultimately, that's the right way to go, becoming a better asker and listener, and then being able to strike away, you know, strip away the noise and find those jobs to be done to really focus your business uh, today and going forward. So let me ask you just a couple quick questions as we're running out of time here. But one I was personally interested in is, why do you think Starbucks failed with tea? Why did Starbucks fail with tea? Yes. Yeah. They tried to start do the same thing in tea that they had done in coffee, they had like a 130 stores, ended up closing them all down. Why do you think that failed? Um, so I'm a tea drinker, not a coffee drinker. So I would go yeah, to Starbucks too. for tea. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and I would say there's a couple of things. One, uh, he isn't as much of an American sit and have a cup of tea as having a cup of coffee. You go to Europe, he is more popular, but you go to Australia and the coffee, they're very bullish, by the way, if you've ever been to Sydney, they are very bullish about their coffee. There's one Starbucks. Yeah, I was there just in January to see the open. Because they're like, that's terrible. Like we drink real coffee, but you yeah. go to a coffee house in Sydney, no tea, no tea, right? So it, it is really about um, who the target customer is, what they're trying to do, um, even Tivana, you know, and, and everything that they, the independent stores, um, you know, listen, I'm also all for failure. <laughs> like I'm for failure and then getting rid of it very quickly. And uh, I use Starbucks actually as one of my, each chapter and each path in the book yeah. has three stories, two positive and one negative. So two positive use cases of that particular growth path and one negative. You might be surprised to know that I used Starbucks for a negative customer experience story because they lost their way in customer experience and then found their way back. And what happened to growth rates and stock price and everything when they got back on track. So I am fine with failure as long as you don't hang on too long um, or you're not failing because you're just trying to do it your way. Uh, think about the Fire Phone, right? Amazon has failed more times than they've succeeded, but we know about all the successes. So, you know, ultimately I'm not afraid of the failure. 
Um, I'm much more interested in what did they learn and then what did they apply from the learning to the existing business? So maybe now they only have three or four teas in all the Starbucks instead of having a hundred flavors, right? So um, they, the standalone all- tea business just, just did not work for them. Uh, quickly, what are the main metrics that a good customer service should be measured against? Great question. So it depends. Um, are you being uh, managed by your CFO? Then the metric is going to be how fast you're answering the phone, how long you're on the call, how many calls you take every day, right? The productivity metrics are very internally focused. If you are a customer-centric brand, then your, your KPIs would be things like customer satisfaction, net promoter score, upsell, cross-sell. Um, even if you're on the phone for 40 minutes, was the customer happy at the end of that? Even though, you know, it, it might have been, we want you to hit a five-minute SLA, but if you go to 40, we're not going to ding you. Um, so the KPIs have to reward the behavior you want from your people. And if they're all productivity internally focused metrics that your customers don't care about, they're not going to help you. Meaning your customers don't care, by the way, this is a true statement, what stage they are in the buying journey. They don't care. Like, am I in stage two and today I'm going to stage three? I don't care. You know, the funnel, they also don't care. They don't care. What they care about is when I reach out, did you answer? Was there value? Did you solve my problem? Like, that's what they care about. And so if you're too focused on KPIs that are about productivity and heads and people and hiring and scheduling, you miss the point. So uh, you want your KPIs to be reflective of both. I'm not telling you to get rid of the standard KPIs because they're important. But you do need to put in customer-facing, externally-focused KPIs to make sure that you're rewarding the behavior from your people um, and not slapping their hand if they happen to sit on a call with a customer who needed them for 40 minutes. So, Tiffany, just because uh, we're just slightly over, and I, I want to be cognizant of your time, but uh, how do people reach you if they want to connect with you? So you can follow me on LinkedIn. So just click the follow button. I post often all the time. There's really great uh, dialogues. Uh, at I'm also at Tiffany underscore Bova on Twitter, uh, at Tiffany Bova on Instagram. Once again, super active on, on those two places. Um, and, you know, I'd love to hear sort of feedback. So, you know, please tell me what resonated with you, what you didn't agree with, uh, what you agreed with. I'm always looking for you know, examples of what companies are doing so that I can improve uh, my talk track as well. Just a yes or no here. Should a customer service, uh, should customer service surveys be done by a third party or can you do it yourself? Yes or no, third party. Uh, it's safe for a third party, but you can do it internally. Yeah. Tiffany, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful holiday and clearly from the comments on there, it was a home run and you were terrific. And a lot of people, I'm sure, are going to be buying your book. Excellent. Well, that's that's helpful too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And buy the book. <laughs> <laughs> and I hope you'll write another one so we can have you back. All right. Thank you, everybody. Take care. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.